You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and grab it and open up to Matthew chapter 4. And then we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter 6. And then we're going to turn back to Psalm 62. And all of these are going to be short readings. And, uh, and just as you're turning there, let me just set the context uh, of where we've been. Today we're finishing up a three-week series that we have titled The Opposite Way, where we are learning that to be a disciple of Jesus in this world often feels like you're going the opposite way. It feels kind of like you are going against the grain, like you're swimming upstream. There's this kind of cultural current that you've got to always fight, and it sort of pulls you in a different direction. And so following Jesus in this culture tends to kind of feel unorthodox and unnatural to the way we're used to running our lives. But our prayer and our hope for you in this series is that you'll see that following Jesus really is the unlikely path to the life that we are all longing for. A life of beauty and love and meaning and joy and freedom, all because it's a life with Jesus. And so that is our prayer for you, is that you would discover that with us in this series. And, and with that, as we finish it up today, I want to start off in Matthew chapter 4. So if you will look there with me. Let's go ahead and read the text. We'll start in verse 1. This is right after Jesus' baptism. And it says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us on prayer. And this is what he says in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We'll close here with... uh, Psalm 62, David prays, uh, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him, God is a refuge for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. So, Father, thank you for uh, hearing and answering prayer. Thank you that what you have for us is not this one-way relationship where you just tell us what to do and give us our orders, but we have conversation with you. We have time with you. You welcome us into your very life to participate in you. And I think my biggest problem that I want to confess publicly is that I just have very little space in my life for that. And so, God, I pray that you would awaken us to the reality that that we need you. We need space with you. So invade this space. 
because all of us are here not by accident, but you have appointed every soul and every seat to be here this morning to encounter the reality of the presence of Jesus. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken hearts to hear your word, um, to believe the gospel, to be raised from the dead. For those who are running for you, running from you, would you stop them dead in their tracks and, and uh, interrupt their lives and save them? For those who are discontent and bored, would you satisfy them? For those who are grieving and and sad, would you comfort them? For those who are numb, would you awaken them? And bring us to a place where we see and savor Jesus for who he really is. Oh God, would you do that? Um, For your own glory and for the good of this church, for the good of Paragold, as as much joy uh, invades this city as we become alive and attentive to your presence. Do it, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, NBC Nightly News ran a story about how there was an alarming rise in the number of coyote attacks in suburban America. So, uh, true story, coyotes were attacking and eating people. And so, uh, you know, at first, people were saying that, well, this is because we're building these suburban developments in the coyotes' natural habitat, and, and they're losing their home, and so they're attacking us. And then you had this one wildlife expert who, who uh, went and did the research and studied each of these individual cases, and he found a common theme as to why this was happening. And here's what he said. I'm going to put this quote on the screen. He says, Coyotes are attacking us. Why? It's not that coyotes have changed, but humans have changed. A few years ago, had someone encountered a coyote in their driveway, they might shout, stomp their feet, kick gravel, or throw a set of keys at the wild, carnivorous thing. These days, something quite different happens. People stop what they're doing and reach for their phones. (laughs) They open camera apps and begin shooting pictures or taking video. The coyote, sensing no threat or danger, inches closer, dreaming of the taste of salt and the crunch of a bone. That's right. Texting, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube have taught us to see a threat like a wild carnivore as an opportunity to broadcast yourself. A feral animal in the driveway is not seen as a threat, but as a means to make our lives look more interesting. What aspects of our lives are free from the tyranny of this culture of display? Now listen to this. This is is the gold. The problem isn't simply one of technology. It's deeper than that. Technology has made this process easier, faster, and more efficient, but ultimately isn't to blame for what's going on. Instead, this process has its roots in our hunger to distract ourselves from psychological, emotional, spiritual pain, and from an impulse to make sure we appear all right to the world. We are so distracted by all the noise of life, the sheer volume of our compulsive busyness, that we can't feel the depths of fear inside as we come face to face with the snarling, hungry wilderness that is this world. In that sense, the noise is working, so we think. The reality, however, is that it's the noise that is eating us alive. The problem, he says, is not that coyotes are seeking revenge because we're taking their homes. The problem, he says, is that these people were so distracted by their phones that they had absolutely zero awareness that they were in the presence of danger. 
And they were so obsessed with their phones that they had, they, they could not feel, they were so numb to the fear inside of them that was telling them that they need to run for their lives. And so they became easy prey to this thing that wanted to eat them. And as if the threat of coyotes wasn't bad enough, I want to submit to you this morning that the danger of our distraction is infinitely worse on a spiritual level. We are so addicted to noise and distraction that we have almost zero awareness of the presence of God in our lives, myself included. Um, A.J. Sherrill says this, He says, every moment of every day, the most significant reality in the entire universe is the radical availability of God's presence. Yet, in almost every moment of every day, we remain unaware of this generous gift. Why? Because we are simply too busy and distracted. We have almost zero awareness of the reality of God's presence in our lives. And like our friends who were attacked and eaten by coyotes... We have almost zero awareness of the presence of a real enemy who wants to attack and eat us. Literally, 1 Peter 5 says, devour and destroy us. And so the reality is when you live your life addicted to noise and distraction, you become easy prey. So brothers and sisters, we've got to start paying attention. Uh, we live in what economists are calling the, the attention economy. Literally, thousands of apps and devices are designed to keep you distracted 24-7. This is why Microsoft researcher Linda Stone says that we live in a state of continual partial attention, which means we're never really fully present anywhere. Um, we know for a fact that our attention span is dropping with each passing year, and right now the average attention span is eight seconds. So if you can ride a bull for more than eight seconds, or you can pay attention for more than eight seconds, congratulations, you're an exceptional American. Like, you are (laughs) above average. And here's why this is so devastating to our soul. Like, here's why this is eating us alive. Here's why this drops us right in the middle of danger. Because this... This addiction to constant noise and distraction that we have, this digital addiction problem that we have, is robbing us of the core fundamental human ability for relationship. We have lost the ability and unlearned the ability to be fully present to ourselves, to what we're feeling, which is why we don't feel fear in the presence of a real enemy. We're, we're, we are not fully present to uh, our wife and our kids and the people around us. And most importantly, we're not present to God. This is robbing us of, of the ability for relationship. And uh, I watched a compelling interview that Simon Sinek, he's a leadership uh, guru and a cultural commentator. I watched an interview he did where he was being asked to talk about how do you lead millennials in the workplace And uh, I want to show you this. I realize this is already a little bit of a long introduction. I think it's worth every second. And so it's a couple minutes long. I want you to to hear what he says about what this is doing to us. And I also want you to know that there's some things he says that are probably going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. But don't lose uh, the bigger picture. So let's, let's hear what Simon Sinek has to say. They were dealt a bad hand, right? Now let's add in technology. We know that... Engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good. 
right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive, right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down... <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe. Right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains, and for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress, that's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks. Right? What's happening is because we're allowing unfettered access to these dopamine producing devices and media, basically it's becoming hardwired. And what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. Their words, not mine. They will admit that many of their friendships are superficial. They will admit that their friends, that they don't count on their friends, they don't rely on their friends, they have fun with their friends, but they also know that their friends will cancel of them if something better comes along. Deep, meaningful relationships are not there because they never practice the skill set. And worse, they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when significant stress starts to show up in their lives, they're not turning to a person. They're turning to a device. They're turning to social media. They're turning to these things which offer temporary relief. We know, the science is clear, we know that people who spend more time on Facebook suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook. Right? These things balanced. Alcohol is not bad. Too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fun. Too much gambling is dangerous. Right? There's nothing wrong with social media and cell phones. It's the imbalance. Right? If you're sitting at dinner with your friends and you're texting somebody who's not there, that's a problem. That's an addiction. If you're sitting in a meeting with people you're supposed to be listening to and speaking and you put your phone on the table, face up or face down, I don't care, that sends a subconscious message to the room that you're, not just, you're just not that important to me right now, right? That's what happens. And the fact that you cannot put it away is because you are addicted, right? If you wake up and you check your phone before you say good morning to your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, you have an addiction. And like all addiction, in time, it'll destroy relationships, it'll cost time, and it'll cost money, and it'll make your life worse. Ouch.
What Simon Sinek is not saying is that your iPhone is the devil or the problem. He made that very clear. What he is saying is that the things you do are do, some, do something to you. And this addiction to noise and distraction, Sinek says, is fundamentally destroying our relationships. And the reason it's putting us in such great danger is it's fundamentally destroying our relationship with the one who matters most. Because we have zero space for him in our lives. Here's the real big idea that he's arguing that I want us to wrestle with this morning. Human beings, as human beings, you and I are not designed for constant distraction. You and I are designed for constant connection to the one who made us. And so the question the church has to answer in the digital age is this. In the digital age, how do we keep from distracting ourselves to death and forfeiting our souls and our relationship with Jesus? How do we relearn what it means to be fully present in our relationship with God and with others around us? How do we learn to stay consciously connected to God in a world that is utterly disconnected from reality? And the answer to that question is found in one of the core practices in the life of Jesus, known as silence and solitude. Silence and solitude, if you need a definition, is simply this. It's intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and with God. And last fall, we did a series called Practicing the Way, where we were learning what it means to practice the ways of Jesus, because that's what it means to be a disciple, to literally adopt his lifestyle as his apprentice. He establishes the template for how we are to live and for what it means to be a human being. And the number one core practice you see Jesus doing in the Gospels is this discipline of silence and solitude. And I really do want to invite us to consider this as day one of the rest of our lives, because as a church, we're going to practice this together. We are, we are exhorting one another from this point on. This is day one, the rest of your life. We are exhorting one another to carve out space and build this practice into your life. It's the only way to stay connected to Jesus in a world that is disconnected. And it is absolutely essential to the Christian spiritual life. Henry Nouwen says, you, you, cannot, you cannot do it. Uh, he says, without silence and solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside uh, some time to be with God and just listen to Him. So ancient Christians called this the secret to a life well lived. I want to share the secret with you this morning. And, uh, And to do that, I want to just start by looking at the life of Jesus as a template. So um, let's dive into it, shall we? Let's, I want to go to Matthew chapter 4, and I want to just examine Jesus' life for just a moment. Look at chapter 4, the text we read earlier, verse 1, and you have Jesus going out into the wilderness. So he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. Tempter comes to him and says, hey, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Turn these stones into bread and satisfy your hunger, and then you'll be okay. And then the story goes on and on. There's two more times the devil comes to him, tempts him. Uh, Jesus stands strong and remains faithful to the Father. And here's what I want you to notice in this story. The first thing Jesus does after his baptism is he slips off into the wilderness. He doesn't like throw up a, a deuce and rock duck lips and post a baptism selfie on Instagram. 
like hashtag Messiah, hashtag blessed, hashtag this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Like he doesn't do, he doesn't, none of that. Like, he, like this is a huge moment, right? And, and, and instead of like killing the sanctity of it, Jesus just quietly slips away and retreats and disappears to be alone with his father in the wilderness for 40 days. I want you to put your eyes on that word wilderness in verse 1 because it's an interesting word. Um, this is the Greek word eremos. Eremos. Uh, it has a wide range of meanings. I'll put them on the, here. There you go. The wilderness, desert, deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, quiet place, lonely place, secret place. And what's interesting is there are stories in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about Jesus' relationship to the Aramos, this place where he regularly goes for silence and solitude to unplug, to get undistracted, and just be alone with his Father. And I want to look at Matthew 4 because this is the first time you see Jesus do this, to go to the Aramos, and it holds the key to understanding why he so often retreated there. I think it begs the question, why does the Spirit do this? Like, why does the Spirit lead Jesus to be alone in the wilderness knowing that he's going to be attacked? I mean, don't we need community? Absolutely. You can't survive without it. But you also need solitude. Why would the Spirit lead Jesus alone in the wilderness to fast for 40 days knowing he's going to face the devil head on and be attacked in this vulnerable spot? See, I think that typically we, we read this story and we think that that's exactly what happens. The devil attacks Jesus at his weakest point. It's this opportunistic time for him. He comes at Jesus when he's at his most vulnerable and he attacks him. I think we actually have it backwards. The devil doesn't attack Jesus when he's at his weakest. He attacks Jesus when he's at his strongest. Because the Eremos is not the place of weakness. The Eremos is the place of strength. So here's, here's um, Mike Cosper says it better than I can. Here's what I mean. Cosper says, Some read this and think the devil was being opportunistic, attacking Jesus only after the pressures of the desert and fasting had weakened him. I don't think that's true. The devil tempted the son, not at his weakest, but at his strongest. He withstood the temptation to eat bread because for 40 days he learned to live without it. Likewise, the adoration of the crowds and the lust for power had no appeal either. When we withdraw into solitude, we not only reconnect with the reality of what's happening within us, we're better able to see and understand the dangers of the world around us. So what Cosper's saying is that the Aramos, this place where you sneak away and you retreat and you get away from your phone and you get undistracted, and you get alone with God to reconnect with Him, that place is not the place of weakness. That's the place of strength. That's the place where you become strong. That's how you survive in a chaotic, addicted, disconnected, distracted world. And Jesus understood that. So after a sustained time of just being in the presence of His Father, Jesus was at the height of His emotional and spiritual strength. He was able to recognize a coyote, spiritually speaking. He didn't stick out his hand and see if it wanted to like lick him and pet it. Like Jesus knows, like, hey, you want to eat me and destroy me. 
I'm aware of that. I'm in tune with that because I'm not distracted. I, I know where I'm at. I'm rooted in reality. I know what's going on. I can see this. And he faced it head on and he defeated the enemy because Jesus was connected to his father. The point, Jesus understood the discipline of silence and solitude as the key to surviving and thriving in a world that's gone mad and like totally disconnected from reality. And that's why over and over throughout his life, you see him going to this place. Let me give you another example. I could give you a ton, but Mark 135, I'll put it on the screen. Uh, This is Jesus' first day on the job as the Messiah. He's come out of the wilderness and he's worked a long day teaching, healing people, casting out demons. And then we read this in verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to the Aramos. There's that word, or as the ESV translates it, a desolate place. And there he prayed. So you see this pattern? Uh, Jesus goes to the Aramos for 40 days, comes back and works one day, and then goes back to the Aramos. And you see this, you see this over and over in his life. I mean, this, this rhythm of silence and solitude, this, this practice, the Aramos was not a one-time thing. This is woven into the fabric of his everyday life. And so there's tons of verses. I'm not going to read them, but I'll put them on the screen. All these references for you, that's just a, a few of them, where you see Jesus withdrawing into silence and solitude. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking. Because if you're anything like me, how in the world does Jesus have time for that? And the answer to that question is he didn't have time for that. He made time for that. <laughs> Uh, Jesus was the busiest dude. Nobody worked, nobody worked a hard, it's not like he didn't work hard. Nobody had a harder job. There's no, the hardest job in the world is being the Messiah. I mean, literally, you got everybody needing you constantly all the time. And here's the pattern you see. You read all four Gospels and just tell me if this isn't true. The pattern you see is the busier Jesus became, the more famous he became, the more on demand he became, the more needed he was, the more he withdrew and retreated to be alone with his father. And if Jesus needed this, Adam needs this. What Jesus is showing us, guys, is he's showing us the template for what it means to be a human being. Jesus is showing us that as human beings, we are not designed for constant distraction. We are designed for constant connection to the God who loves us, who created us, and who gave his life for us. And his life is the template for how we are to live as his disciples and his apprentices. That's why Jesus not only models this practice for us, but he mandates this practice for us. See, all throughout the scriptures, we are commanded to do this. We are actually commanded to practice. This is non-negotiable. Guys, listen, I'm just learning this, really, for the first time in my life. I'm shoulder to shoulder with you trying to learn this the hard way. I promise. I do not have this figured out. I stink at this. But what I have realized the last couple years of my life is that the Bible says, Jesus says, this is non-negotiable for your spiritual life. It's not optional. You're commanded to do it because you need it. And so I want to just, I want to look at that. I want to I break down solitude and silence and just look at that with you for, for a second. And I want to start with solitude. Where are we commanded to practice solitude? I mean, lots of places, but we'll look at one. Uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 6. This is where Jesus, we read this text a second ago. He's teaching us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, don't flaunt your prayers like the hypocrites, but do this, he says. He says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door 
and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I mean, let's not be silly with this. He's not saying that you can't pray out loud or pray in public. We see public prayers and group gathering prayers and prayer gatherings all over the scriptures, all over. But what he's saying is for us individually as disciples, we've got to have space in our lives where we go into our room, whatever that, your own secret place, and you shut the door and you get alone with God. Find your own secret place, Jesus says. Discover your own eremos. And go there and get alone, get away from the chaos of this digital age and just be with God. Look, this is the way real loving relationships work. Is that, not, is that right? Authentic, intimate relationships have to have space to be alone. Like, that's why it's important for you to continue to date your spouse. You know, if, if, if my wife and I never got alone and like went on a date, then here's what's going to happen. Uh, 18 years from now, and this happens all the time, when, when our kids graduate and they leave the house and we're finally alone together for the first time in 20 years, we're going to look at each other and you know what we're going to realize? I don't know you. And guys, that, this, this alone time is crucial for relationship, which is what the noise and distraction is robbing us of. And, and for, for many years, for most of my life following Jesus, I have just hook, line, and sinker given, given myself to this. I have spiritualized as a pastor my obsessive busyness and my own digital addiction. I have literally, in my mind and out loud, said things like, no, man, i got to keep my phone on me because I'm a pastor and people need me. It's just a sick relationship. Uh, or I need to be on Facebook and Instagram that much so that I can know what my people are doing. Yeah, we spy, we spy on you guys, just so you know. <clears throat> so I can know like where their heart's at and what's going on. And I had this cluttered life in any margin or space I had, I filled it up with distraction. A screen or some other type of inoculating activity that was meaningless and distracting. And for many of you in this room, that describes your relationship with God. Uh, most of us in this culture um, are overcommitted. We don't know how to say no. We're pulled in a thousand directions. Our kids are involved in multiple extracurricular activities. We run around like chickens with our heads cut off. And any extra space you have, you fill it with a screen. Netflix, Facebook, Instagram. Again, that stuff's not the enemy. It's just that that stuff's doing something to you. And there's simply no space in our life to be alone with God. And we wonder why he feels distant and we feel anxious. You know, Blaise Pascal once, he was on to this way before all this. I mean, Blaise Pascal said a long, long time ago, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And what he's saying is that all of our problems are rooted in the fact that we're too busy and too distracted for God. So the anxiety we carry, the emotional unhealth we carry, uh, the fact that inside we're defensive, we don't know how to be vulnerable, we have an inability to trust, uh, we're controlled by other people's opinions, we're made or broken based on criticism or praise, we've got all this dysfunction, childhood wounds, all this stuff going on inside of us, and it's controlling us. And the reason why is because we have zero space to get alone and process it with the Father. Look, if, you, if you're going to survive in the wilderness, 
you've got to have a connection to God. You've got to have a, a conscious relationship with Him. And it takes space. And I realize I'm using a lot of quotes, man. I'm sorry. It's just because I'm not, there's people a lot smarter than me. But here's Mike Cosper again. This is one of my favorite quotes ever. Cosper says, The Bible often likens God's relationship to His people to that of lovers. God is the lover. We are His beloved. Romantic love depends upon an intimacy that goes well beyond the old principle, don't kiss and tell. Lovers share more than their physical intimacy. They share their secrets, their pasts, their desires, and their disappointments. When's the last time you shared your secrets with God? When's the last time you shared your desires, your past, your disappointments, your frustrations, your, your pain? When's the last time you brought, shared any of that with Him? He says, Nothing will end a relationship more quickly than the betrayal of confidence. We need a space for similar intimacy with God. We need a space in our life for stories and experiences that exist only between Him and me. So we need, the, we need to guard the borders of our solitude. We need a secret place. Jesus says, go to your secret. Go find your own Aramos. Go there and be alone with me and be still. See, it's not enough just to get alone. You've got to be still and you've got to be quiet. If you're alone with God, but you've got your phone and you've still got all these distractions and you've got all this inner chatter going on in your mind, then it really doesn't do very good. Does it? Like if I'm on a date with my wife and the whole time I'm on a date, we're alone together, right? But we're sitting at, you know, wherever and I'm doing this on my phone. Am I fully present to her? Like am I actually with her? No, I'm distracted. You've got to be still and you've got to be silent and there's this invitation from the scriptures to listen, which is how relationships work. I'm not going to do all the talking. For a real authentic relationship to happen, I've got to do some listening. I've got to learn to be silent. And so you have David command us, or he says it's a command from God in, in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. God says, like, hey, what you need on your life is not more on your schedule. What you need is not another activity or another meaningless glance at Facebook. Like what you need, he says, is to be still and then get to know me. Do you notice that? Look, look at that. It's in the stillness that you get to know God personally. Not in the busyness. It's in the stillness. You will never encounter God in the busyness of life if you don't learn how to encounter him in the stillness of life. You have to learn to be still. And this is how you learn him on a personal level, which is where, you know, this is David's, David's preaches to himself in Psalm 62. Look at Psalm 62. He commands his own soul. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Look at all the personal pronouns. This is... It's in the solitude and the stillness that Jesus becomes my God, my rock, my fortress. I learn that I can trust him with my secrets, with my everything. I learn to depend on him. I learn to trust in him at all times. When kids have high fevers, when kids have regular temperatures, right? When you lose that job, when you get that promotion, when this person... Um, stays committed to you when this person doesn't stay committed to you. David says the way you learn to trust him at all times is in the stillness 
and the silence because that's where the intimate personal relationship develops. You've got you to be still. Now, why is this so hard for me? Why is this so hard for us? Um, we don't like silence very much. That's why we call it awkward silence, right? It's, we don't see silence as a friend and a participant in our spiritual formation. We see it as an enemy, this thing that's invasive and go away. That I want to distract. That's why, when's the last time you didn't have the TV on in the background just simply just for noise? Or when's the last time you rode in your car without listening to the radio or texting and driving? Um, the scariest place to be at any point is on Highway 49 because, dude, people drive 85 miles an hour and they're doing this while they're driving. It, it's terrifying to me. When is the last time you went for a jog or did anything without listening to a podcast or Spotify? Or like, why do we have to have noise? Is it that we're running from something? It's not just the outer noise, but it's the inner noise, right? You get still, you get alone with God. And for me, my mind is running a million miles an hour in all these different places. I easily am distracted. I'm telling you, my mind drifts, and I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to spend time with him. And I'm, all I'm thinking about is all the stuff i got to do. I'm anxious. I'm worried. My mind's plotting and strategizing and analyzing, and I'm thinking about these things that I'm worried about. And there's this outer and this inner noise that constantly threatens our relationship with Jesus. And it's hard for us to just be still and just be silent. But I think the real reason why it's hard for us is because we are desperately trying to avoid what the late David Foster Wallace called the terror of silence. And here's, here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, We are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order to not have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order to not have to look at ourselves in the mirror. So what happens when you finally get still and you finally come face to face with God in the stillness and the silence, you also come face to face with the depths of yourself. And what begins to rise to the surface in silence is all my sin, all my dysfunction, all my brokenness, all my wounds. Um, I'm, no, I'm no longer able to live with this false self-reality, this image of myself of who I think I want to be, the 10% that you all see in me. And now I'm down into the depths of the 90% of me, and it's all this junk I don't want to deal with. Emotional pain, childhood wounds, anxiety, suffering, sin, insecurity, all this stuff starts rising to the surface, and it absolutely terrifies us. We don't, we don't want to go there. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. I've just been living there lately because he says, you've got to go into the inner being and be strengthened there. That's where Christ dwells by faith. And when you go there, he will meet you there. Because he dwells there in the midst of all that dysfunction. Did you know that? And he loves you anyway. He didn't have a problem dealing with it. We're the ones who don't want to deal with it. But when you go there, you find grace and mercy. Look, grace is for messy people. If you ain't got any messiness, you don't get any grace. So like all the mess that's going on, you've got to go there and be silent and deal with it so that you can get mercy and grace for it. I had a profound experience of this in the hospital this week. You know, Jared got us doing this iPhone challenge. It's kicking my tail, man. And so I'm trying to do this thing where I'm not touching my phone in transitional moments and I'm not on Facebook to do, you know, just to do whatever. And 
not trying to use my social media apps. And, and so I'm, in a, I'm stuck in a hospital room for five days with not, like nothing to do. I'm stir crazy. I'm trying to work, but I'm worried. And, and there'd be these moments where I would want to reach for my phone just to distract myself and not have to deal with what I'm feeling. I just need a hit of that dopamine, man. Like grab my phone and look at something. And there'd be these moments where Susanna and Carrie would fall asleep for about 30 minutes. And I'd be sitting in this room all alone in the silence, terrified. And you, know, you want to know what began to come to the surface? I want to share this experience with you. What began to come to the surface at first was all this anxiety about my daughter. And honestly, anxiety about my sermon. Like, how am I gonna, what am I going to do this? I don't have any time, but what am I doing? And, and then helplessness and fear of like, what if she's not okay? Like, what, what, what am I going to do? You want to know what the next, next feeling and thought that arised from the depths of me was arrogance and pride and self-entitlement. God, I don't deserve this. I serve you. Uh, I keep my heart pure before you. Like, I don't deserve this. And I had all this self-entitlement. Like, what are you doing to me? And then that quickly turned into shame over having those thoughts and those feelings. But it was there. Jesus knew it was there. He brought it to the surface in the silence. And not to shame me, but to heal me. Like, this is what's amazing. So I go from anxiety to self-entitlement and pride to shame to, like, complete freedom because what I feel like happens in the moment is the gospel just washes over me and I feel Jesus within me go like hey man I've got this and I love you and my grace is sufficient for you like I forget I've already forgiven you I already knew this stuff was in there and I've made a home in you like I'm just bringing it to the surface because I'm cleaning house like I'm bringing it to the surface so that you can see it and I can see it and we can see it together in this relationship and you can watch me heal it and have mercy on you so that you can know how glorious and how awesome I am in my love for you. And dude, I'm telling you, man, like I was practically levitating in the hospital. I was so jazzed. Not really. I don't levitate. Just so you know, that doesn't happen in silence and solitude, unless you're John Mark Comer. Um, so, but listen, man, what I'm saying is this is the, the silence. Here's what I'm trying to say. The silence and the solitude, guys is where the real Jesus meets the real you. He's not going to meet you in the digital distraction and the obsessive busyness and the image of who you think you are. Because that, You know why he won't meet you there? Because Jesus doesn't exist outside of reality. And we're living in a world disconnected from reality. And what Jesus wants to do through silence and solitude is pull you back into what is real, man, and engage you there. It's where the real Jesus meets the real you, and the real Jesus heals and transforms the real you. Now, how does all this work on a practical level? Because um, the goal here is not just to talk about this, but to practice this. And we're actually going to practice practicing this in our missional communities and our fight clubs. All your MC leaders have what I'm about to share with you really quickly uh, has been put into a document, and your MC leaders have it. And you guys are going to discuss it. And then uh, as you go home and you practice, there's guidelines and steps that MC leaders are going to give you uh, for how to practice this on your own so that you have some structure and you don't get lost. 
And then you guys are going to come together for the next couple of weeks and discuss this and debrief this experience in your fight clubs. And I promise you, if you practice this and stay at this, it will change your life. Um, so let me, let me real quick, because I'm going long, share with you uh, some, some, what this looks like practically on the ground. A couple things here. Know your personality, season, and stage of life. I think that's important. This is going to be practiced by your personality. If you're a four or five on the Enneagram, you're going to love this. If you're a three or a seven on the Enneagram, this is going to be a challenge for you. What I'm trying to say is if you're an introvert, you might, this, you, you might love this and you might need more silence and solitude. If you're an extrovert, this is going to be a little bit more challenging for you. And the point is, regardless of our personalities, everybody needs this. And it's going to look different for all of us. And that's okay. Um, you also need to be familiar with your season and stage of life. Some of you are in high school and you are uh, busy with school and all these activities and you've got friends and things to do and all this kind of stuff. Some of you are uh, working two jobs and you're in grad school and you've got kids at home and for some of you, you're doing all that at once and then some of you are retired. The point is, whatever season of stage of life you're in, this is necessary. There's no excuses. You've got to carve out some space, and it's okay if it looks different. You know, I'm not Henry Nowen. I, 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 Henry Nowen never got married, and he built this retreat center where he lived, and he spent, like, all of his time in silence and solitude. I can't do that, and that's okay. It's going to look different for me. Um, You've got to know your personality, season, stage of life. Think practice, not performance. This is hard, and you're going to fail. And if you come at this with a legalistic, performance-based heart... This is going to beat you up and defeat the purpose. Uh, so this takes practice, not performance. And if you've got a practice mindset, then guess what? When you practice, failure is always an opportunity for grace and growth. And so I want you to think practice, not performance. Think short, not long. Uh, find short little times throughout your day to just stop what you're doing and breathe in and acknowledge that all of creation is alive with God's presence. You are in his presence, communing with him through the, 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 the personal work of Jesus. So rather than grab your phone in those little spaces when you're on an elevator or taking a walk or using the bathroom or waiting at a stoplight, like don't, don't touch your phone. Just take a deep breath and acknowledge what is the most real reality in all the universe. Jesus is with you. He's there. And just enjoy that. Think short. Think long. Uh, you need to also carve out maybe, you know, 5, 10, 20 minutes of your day to sit in his presence. We'll talk about that in a second. Maybe you take a half day or a full day retreat for yourself once or twice a year. Jesus took a 40-day retreat. I don't think a half day or a full day retreat is going to kill you. So think short. Think long. Um, don't add, subtract. Most of us are incredibly busy. If you try to cram spending time with Jesus into your life, it won't work. Uh, instead of cramming, you've got to do some carving. So what are the things that you can cut out of your life? Go to bed earlier, Netflix. I mean, you get it. The Spirit's telling you what it is. Just carve it. Cut it. Make this a daily rhythm. The real key to this, to flourishing against the temptations of the enemy in the wilderness, is you've got to make this a daily rhythm. Uh, and so here's what that looks like. Identify a time and a place that works well for you. Uh, time. For me, the best time is the morning because it's the only time I've got where there's actual quiet and I can be alone. Um, for others of you, the morning isn't going to work. And so think, you know, be creative. Maybe it's when the kids are napping, you're on a lunch break, right when you get home from work, before you go to bed. 
The point is, take a designated time and then as Cosper said, guard the borders of your solitude. Guard that time that's sacred, that's precious. Uh, find a place that's comfortable, right? Uh, a chair, room, office, inside, outside. The point is find a time, find a designated place. That's my Ramos. I'm going to go there on a daily basis and spend five, ten, however many minutes with Jesus. Um, I would set a modest goal for how many minutes you're going to try to sit there. If you go in there without trying to set a modest goal, then like it just feels like there's, it, str- it struggles to be intentional. And so I started with just like two minutes. And, you know, right now I try to sit there for 10 minutes. Sometimes I'll sit there longer. I set a timer on my phone. Now, I put my phone on airplane mode and I put it where I can't see it. So nobody can text me. You can't reach me. But it's not even there where I can see it. And so it's out of sight, out of mind. And I just have a timer set. I'm just going to sit there and try to just breathe and be in the presence of God. If you get distracted, which you will, then recenter your mind. Like if your mind starts to drift, well, hang on, I, I, I'm, uh, let, me, let me move up and say one, one more thing before that. Um, yeah, put away your distractions, okay? And then settle into your time and place. Anybody listen to Jack White? Nope, okay, me neither. Uh, Jack White starts every show with a plea to just put away your phone and enjoy the experience. And so when you settle into your time and your place, Just try to put away all distractions and then try to declutter your mind just by breathing. Now, then if you get distracted, that's okay. Uh, Recenter your mind if it starts drifting. There's there's this thing called breathing prayer that you can do where you just kind of take a deep breath and you you just inhale. Maybe when you inhale, you say something like, help me. And you exhale and you say, Jesus, or just be with me. The point is, don't beat yourself up. God's not trying to do that. He's waiting on you graciously to return and just simply be with Him. If you start to drift, recenter. Pay attention to any feelings that arise to the surface. Offer those to Jesus and let Him meet you there. Shame, guilt, fear, whatever He's doing, He's squeezing a sponge, bringing it to the surface so that He can heal you. That's good news. Uh, And then I would close by reading Scripture and praying. So this is when, after I spend about 10 minutes or so in silence and solitude, that's when I read the, the Bible project, and I'll spend a few minutes reading, and then I just close by, thank, thank you, God, for meeting with me. It may not feel like a mountaintop experience. In fact, most of the time it doesn't, because that's how relationships work, and this is a real relationship, and so I just thank him for spending time with me, and then I just pray for whatever's on my heart throughout the day. Look, the point is, in a digital age, to survive You've got to have this. You've got to carve out space to be with Jesus. And here's the good news of the gospel. It's not just that you need to be with Jesus. He wants to be with you. And he's done everything to make that possible. Jesus has initiated this relationship. And if you want the, if you want the proof of that, all you have to do is look at the cross. Because Jesus knows we're distracted and weak and sinful and rebellious. And he loves us. And he came and he bore the full weight of our sin on the cross and gave his life for us so that by faith, through grace, in Christ alone, we can be brought into the love of God and have this relationship with him. Jesus wants to be with you. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. It is the only hope in all the universe.